Welcome to Kuden, the radio show and podcast for self-defense and martial arts news, interviews, techniques, and history. Hosted by Sheehan Jeffrey Miller and Shidoshi Eric White. Sheehan Miller is a 13th degree black belt and master instructor of Warrior Concepts International in Sunbury, Pennsylvania. Shidoshi Miller's martial arts career spans over 30 years and has taken him around the world to train with some of the world's best martial arts masters. Shidoshi Eric White has been a student of Sheehan Miller's for over a decade. Together, they will answer your questions, discuss techniques, history, and current issues important to you, the self-defense-minded citizen and the practicing martial artist. Submit your questions by email to warriorc at warrior-concepts-online.com. Hello and welcome to this next episode of Kudan. Uh, feels, at least for me anyway, like it's been a while, but uh, I know uh, the program has been continuing. Uh, you had a special guest on last week, which is great. Uh, I'm Eric White, joined by Jeffrey Miller. We're here to answer your questions and talk about whatever the heck we feel like, because it's our show, damn it. Uh, That's right. And see how replaceable you are? I filled in for you last week. That makes me feel really good, actually. Uh, all warm and fuzzy. Yeah. Uh, it's okay. Yeah, no. You're not replaceable. The show is bigger than me. That's that's good. Well, uh, it's more I important. The shows, <laughs> I don't know that anybody could do it this way. They could try, but anyway. It's, it's uh, yeah, and and so special guest uh, in the last episode, uh, Dwayne Gilbert. So we were just talking a little bit yeah. about he's back involved with the uh, the school there and in Seatlands Grove and and uh, After a military stint when I started there at the school, he was program director at the time. So it's it's neat to see him back in in place there. Absolutely, and uh, it's very difficult to find somebody uh, as passionate uh, to make sure that whatever your uh, vision is for your training group or whatever, you know, uh, it, it's moving in the right direction. Uh, you know, I've always said that, uh, you know, you can hire, uh, everybody wants to try to focus their hiring on whether somebody has a skill set or whatever, but um, I tend to do it the opposite way around. I, I absolutely believe that you can always train somebody in skills, um, but you can't change somebody's attitude, personality type. You can't yeah. give somebody passion, that kind of thing, and I would rather uh, hire and promote to get uh, the right personality type uh, because then training comes, or not training, but um, the relationship comes down to a can't or won't kind of thing, right? Uh, right. If somebody can't do something, that's on me as the, the leader of the dojo or the, the head of whatever the business is or whatever. Um, same thing with parents and kids, right? If they can't do it, that's a training issue. That's on me. It's easy. I can, I can train them, teach them, give them the right lessons or whatever. If somebody won't, um, I can take care of that as well. That's a them thing, but it's a me thing because I, that in that case, I show them the door, right? So um, I will never be held hostage by somebody who thinks that um, I can't live without them. Yeah. Um, and, you know, because for all relationships, um, and that is part of things that think people, I think people need to think about when they get involved in them. That doesn't make me an arrogant ass when it comes to my wife or my kids or whatever. Um, but that does make it part of my responsibility when getting into relationships to make sure that I've communicated authentically. And on one hand, I'm not accepting. And on the other hand, I'm not. Uh, you know, forcing somebody to comply to my wishes. It just means that I need to be very clear about uh, the kind of person I am, the kind of life I want, and then go looking for people that, that match that, not who are willing to bend and become something that they're not. Uh, I'm very clear on that as well. Don't become something you're not because mm. that will only last for so long, right? I mean, you know, the facade will drop as soon as you become comfortable. 
So if this isn't you, I'm not looking for somebody to be what I want them to be. I'm looking for somebody that's already a certain way and that meshes with the kind of life I want to live. And I should, because of they're that way, I should, I should mesh that way as well. But if it doesn't work out, then let's cut our losses early on. It saves both of us a whole lot of time, effort, energy, money, whatever it is, um, yeah. you know, fighting later on, that kind of thing. So, hmm. uh, you know, uh, but anyway, that's just a matter of clarity. And I think as warriors, we all need to be very, very clear about uh, the fences we put up, right, the boundaries that we create that, uh, hmm. on one hand, we're not we're – not, Open to everything. I love everyone. I do love everyone. Some people, though, I can accept them for who they are, but I'm going to accept them from a distance because they don't get a chance to come trampling through my life, right? Yeah. So I can still love you and accept you for who you are at a distance, uh, but that doesn't mean that you get to come, you know, bring in your poison into my life. Um, so when we set up these boundaries, then, uh, you know, we're not letting people just come and go as they please and then we're the one that's just, just going to kind of adapt to it, even though we're stressed out and our life is hell. But then we can choose who to open those different gates for, right, and allow mm. to come in. Um, and I think that's just a really, really important thing to, to understand, that uh, if, if people are trampling through our lives, then there's a certain area where we have not managed, we haven't controlled, we haven't clearly expressed or stated our, uh, our limits or expectations, right? And when I do that, when I've done that, uh, you know, uh, when I was single before, I was between marriages and I was single, um, mm-hmm. that was something I, I led off with very, very early on, especially when they started to do the, uh, I call it the, the uh, pre-wedding application kind of thing, you know, when they <laughs> right. started asking questions about your job <laughs> sure. and what you do for a living and right. can't we talk about something more intelligent? So I would lead off with these things and I actually had uh, women say, you know, uh, I can't do that. I, 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 that that's not acceptable to me, but I really appreciate that you expressed this early. Uh, that way we can save ourselves a whole yeah. lot of time and effort and, and that kind of sure. thing. Um, and what I find is that with confident people, not only do they appreciate it, but they're not offended by it because they're comfortable with who they are in their own skin. The people that I find get ruffled by this approach and by me being me and authentic and all that um, are either people with low self-esteem, and so I come across as not confident but arrogant, and people who are control freaks who have to be in control, and you're not allowed to be your yourself anyway. You have to be what they want, right? So, uh, and I'm okay. Uh, you know, thank you for disqualifying yourself early on. Um, but it, it's it, we everybody needs to understand this, that um, you need to be clear about who you are and what you're doing. If you are a self-serving prick, then just admit it, right? Because when somebody calls you arrogant, they're using the right word. But if you are confident in your own skin, just know that most people are going to be okay with that. Some people may be intimidated because you have a high level of integrity and you, you, are, you walk your talk, so, so to speak, right? Um, yeah. If somebody calls you a name or whatever, it rolls off. You know, you may smile. You may correct them, you know, whatever. But um, just know that confidence is seen as arrogance by people mm-hmm. who either want to rule you or are afraid of people who are very clear about who they are. Uh, yeah. Confidence scares weak people. 
confidence is a threat to people who are trying to bull their way through life, right? But at the same yeah. time, you know, um, uh, like I said, if you if you are the arrogant, it has to be my way, and you're going to be bossy and push people around in your life, and they must do things your way. Then admit that you're an arrogant prick because <laughs> that's that's <laughs> it. I mean, it, you know, it has to be my way, right? So anyway, uh, the, and again, that may make people pissy and want to run off anyway, but um, personal clarity is the first uh, training area in the Togakure review. So um, focus on personal clarity. Everybody wants to, you know, not die at the hands of somebody else. Meanwhile, they're killing themselves and producing a life that's hell, um, and it's at their own doing, right? So hmm. uh, be clear. It's like any other 12-step program. Until you admit that there's an issue that needs to be worked on, you can't work on it. And nothing becomes more clear than when you look yourself in the, in the, in the eye in the mirror and go, yeah, dude, you're doing this to yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And it might not be because you're an arrogant prick. It might be because you're a wuss, right? I mean, you you are surrounding yourself with people that um, don't value you or they don't like what you're saying or they uh, want to dominate you or whatever. And the fact that you won't walk away or the fact that you won't take a stand or whatever it empowers them and enables them to continue to do the same thing. So, yeah, mm-hmm. um, you're a wuss. So <laughs> either recognize it so that you can start changing it or accept it and own it, and at least you have some kind of empowerment because you own this position, and mm-hmm. you, that's mm-hmm. the way you choose to live. So, anyway, right. not fashionable speech because <laughs> we're supposed to be accepting well, and, of everyone and, you... and all that. You kind of touch on, you know, this really, this is this is about being, trying to be authentic uh, to who you are. But um, kind of as a follow-up to that and, and how we often talk about training and some things like stealth training and, and not so much the, you know, physical stealth. But what, where does uh, some of this authenticity come into play when you can't be or shouldn't be authentic with a person uh who may be, you know, an opposition or an enemy, or how does that how does that kind of come about? I mean, I think we've talked about this before that there's that kind of personal clarity and and that spiritual refinement was always kind of that first level of ninjutsu training. Uh, looking back at at the history of it, uh, and that it was key. But then, so so we get to that point, and then at what point do we start to mask certain things uh, because we we need to? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And by the way, for everybody that's listening, uh, this was impromptu. <laughs> Somehow it led. Sorry, into this I just threw this at you. I'm sorry. No, no, no. no. <laughs> this, this, this. Even my introduction to these things came about uh, as a result of a previous conversation. Uh, but um, no, this is impromptu. We didn't plan on this. So, uh, but no, this is an awesome question. And actually, I just had a conversation during a lunch meeting that I had with Dwayne, and we were talking about this very thing that, um, you know, I I was in a past relationship where I was very clear going in that Hmm. uh, there's three things that I offer um, as a given going into relationships. And it doesn't doesn't matter if it's a personal, intimate relationship or it's a business relationship or, you know, whatever, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Mm -hmm. You and I. Right? Whatever. I mean, yeah. if I invite you into my world, you get three promises. There's three promises, and my wife got the same thing. One, honesty always. Two, never a dull moment. And three, you'll never be safer with anybody else. Now, is that one subjective? Yeah, but in your world, if you have a better option to be safe, can they offer you the other two promises as well? But, you know, I will, I will die trying to defend you. So it is, it is what it is, right? Mm-hmm. So... Um, 
uh, I make these promises. Uh, now, that goes back to the honesty always, right? Uh, so in this relationship, uh, when we got into this relationship, she said, you know, I'm tired of paying people being false and everything. Uh, even in my own family, the truth is always covered up uh, for PC or so that things are nice. But, you know, the problems are still there. Everything gets swept under the rug, but so much gets swept under the rug that now you're walking on uh, lumpy things that you're tripping over all the time, right? So, but then we get to a point about six months into the marriage, and she said, you know, I know I said that I need you to, mm. to, to always tell me the truth, whether I like it or not, but I can't handle that, so um, I need you to lie to me. And I said, mm. I can't do that. I love you. I can't do that. Mm-hmm. If I'm lying to you, it's because I am destroying you. Okay? So, and I, this goes into the ninja stuff. In, in Seishin Teki, this personal clarity, when a ninja was using disguise and impersonation in Tonjutsu or Hensojutsu or anything like this, um, the, the truth of who you really are, that, that flame, gets tucked away, not extinguished, not, it's not like a, being a sociopath or a psychopath where it just gets blown out and you're just flat out cold. It gets mm-hmm. tucked away so nobody gets to see it, but it's still there. The real you just kind of gets covered up, Okay intentionally, not accidentally like most people do, right, where they build mm. a facade because they're mm-hmm. afraid that other people will find out who they really are, right? In this case, it gets tucked away because that's your motivation for acting, okay? But the authenticity is that when you are lying, when you are burning bridges, when you were doing those kind of things, you, you make no qualms about it, right? I'm doing this because it's a weapon used against this person who uh, mm. must end, right, must be destroyed, must be put in their place, that kind of thing, right? Is that who I am all the time? No. It serves as a tool in this moment. Uh, So I don't, I'm very clear with my friends and my family and stuff like that, right? Um, When I say something to you uh, that is harmful or that is harsh or whatever, I'm never going to be apologizing for hurting you because in the moment I intended to hurt you. I'm not going to say, well, you know, I really didn't mean it. And, you know, when we're angry, we all say things we don't mean. Uh, well, you must have meant it in the, in the moment because mm-hmm. you intended to win. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm very authentic about that. If I say something to you that I did not intend to hurt you or to harm you or to cause damage or anything like that to you, that's when I apologize. I apologize because there was no intent to damage authenticity is about being your true self. So when you intend to do harm, damn it, admit to it. Stop apologizing for things that, you know, apparently, I didn't mean it. Really? Uh, Because that was pretty hurtful, and you did mean it because you were trying to win, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, we we create these these weird things, these weird dynamics. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we're teaching our kids, we're teaching other people that, you know, that don't know any better, that are trying to learn things and grow up in life and all that, that, you know, um, well, see, mom and dad are constantly fighting, but they won't leave each other. They hate each other, but they won't leave each other and all that. Um, we're teaching them that, one, that's the way all relationships happen. And, two, you know, when they happen, we're just supposed to accept it because that's just the way it is. When instead they should be learning that even two people that love each other very, very deeply can have disagreements. And sometimes those disagreements can become kind of heated, but they never say anything that's, that's going to damage the other person. They disagree, they stand their ground, they may shout, whatever, but they never call somebody a name that they have to take back later 
unless it was true and they meant it or whatever, right? Um, and the rest of the relationship should show that there is this deep love and connection and uh, sacrifice for the other person. All these things that, that is loving that the, that the child sees that, okay, I get it, right? They're very, very loving. I want to have a relationship like that. But, yeah, okay, you know, even the best of relationships have little bumps, okay? I get that. So there is no utopic thing. But at the mm-hmm. same time, they, they learn that, look, if this becomes toxic, um, you know, they took time off. They separated or they whatever, okay? Um, so I'm, you know, I walk right down the middle on that, that to me a divorce is a legal end to a relationship that is already finished. It's already over, right? Um, if it's not already over, the, other, the, the two people are clearly making strides to make things work. Not one person is kowtowing to the other to make things work. Um, right. Both people are, are actively working on it. Okay, and that goes the same for business. It goes the same for uh, teacher-student relationships and all that. But um, you know, it's this, this personal clarity. So the authenticity uh, comes in when we're masking things that you know the the lies and all that. Uh, which is you know, if you're going to fight, you're going to be burning bridges. You fight to win. You fight because. Uh, negotiation, agreements, bureaucracy, all that kind of stuff has failed, right? So at that point, yes, all is fair in love and war. It's hmm. uh, well, it's not love anymore, right? It's, it's war. So, uh, but don't don't say anything that could damage a relationship. As a matter of fact, that relationship I'm talking about, uh, the person I was with, uh, I came to find out after we divorced that the divorce was her last attempt to get me to comply surrender myself mm. and do what she wanted. Wow. And I was and she was willing to sacrifice our family to get her way. And all I can say in the aftermath is thank you for proving my point. Mm. So but it wasn't really a point. It was a walking away for something that was very, very toxic. Right. And unfortunately yeah, her yeah. children her children are seeing the same thing. Right, and they're recognizing, you know, dad lives one way, mom lives another. The intentions behind their actions are, they speak volumes, sure. right? So while the actions may look the same in different contexts, dad gets angry for very different reasons than mom gets yeah. angry, right? right. So, uh, and, and that's, what, that's what shows through, right? So it's not that people get angry. It's not that people punch people. It's not that people do these things. What's the intention behind it? Right? Are you yelling and screaming and calling people names because you simply must win the argument and you can't concede that you were, you were, you were wrong, right? Um, you know, but when you're wrong, you blame and call the other person names. That doesn't make you right. It's kind of like in the political arena these days. And I'm not getting in a political soapbox and I'm not telling you which side I'm on. I'm, I'm always on the fence. I'm always walking down the middle because both sides are both right and wrong uh, at different times, right? And besides that, there aren't two sides. Everybody is convinced that there's two parties running for president or whatever when in the last how many different elections there were six or more people on the ballot, right? So the fact that you've been duped by the media because they only give attention to two parties, that's not my fault, right? So that's either way. Um, But um, uh, it's uh, when when you have... One party throwing data and asking for evidence, and all you get from the other side is name-calling. Hell, all yeah. I have to do is go back to when I was six or younger, and my grandmother telling me, 
Jeff, if somebody ever reduces to simply calling you names and they can't provide a better reasonable side to their argument, if they reduce themselves to calling names, they have nothing. Right. Right. At that point, it's done. So if you ever call somebody a name because you have nothing else, hold your tongue and don't call them the name because you've already lost. Yeah. Right. So if my grandmother was smart enough to know that <laughs> and teach a three to six year old that, then that's what we need to look at the arena because if, if people are reducing themselves to name calling, um, they ha they have nothing else. They that's that's what they have. They either they only want it their way, and if they don't get it their way, they're going to call you a name. Right. I mean, it's one of the it's one of the ways. Uh, it's actually a strategic way to actually win arguments and shut people down. Um, because what will happen is the other side will go into defense mode because right. if you call somebody a racist, whether they are or aren't, they will go into defense mode to prove that they're not. Or they will shut up because they know that there's nothing left to say that you won't twist on them to prove your point. Right. But what ends up happening is the immature and the un less than intelligent or the uh, unenlightened or whatever – will look at that silence as weakness. And, mm. you know, one of my favorite sayings is, never, ever, ever confuse my silence with weakness or my silence with acceptance, right? Sometimes yeah. my silence is letting you to continue to, to uh, uncoil your rope and give yourself lots of rope because it's, at the moment that I decide to act, you have created enough evidence for me that you will simply hang yourself. Uh, sometimes the silence is just to let you do what you do so that you can show the world who you really are. Keep talking. Keep acting. Keep doing your thing. Yeah. Um, you don't need me to throw. And besides that, if one person is ranting and raving and the other person is silent, you don't have a fight. You have an idiot yelling and screaming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? So sometimes if somebody wants to fight and argue and I go quiet or silent, you know, they can think that they're winning. But all eyes are on them, not on me. Yeah. I was in a past relationship that way that I walked away from. Because when she wanted her own way, she would yell and scream, thinking that other people would look at me or look at whoever she was yelling and screaming at as this terrible person. What she mm. couldn't see in her blind rage and her self-serving egocentric uh, position was that everybody was looking at her like, why the hell are you shrieking like an animal? And isn't mm. there a better place in time? for you to have this discussion with this person than in an open public forum. Right. So right. yeah, sometimes mm -hmm. you let them hang themselves. But as far as the masking things go, it's part of the authenticity. It absolutely is. Uh, hmm. Because when you're using disguise and impersonation, you should be using it to bring about a better good or to undermine someone that has to go. Not, not for what most people use it for, to pack on the facade and pretend that they're one thing when really they're not, mm. right? So, uh, and you can tell that. But, uh, you know, Shoji Malmstrom used to call that the big dog, little dog syndrome, right? When the, yeah. When the big, the big dog just lays around. He can know he can freaking gnaw your leg off. So a big dog being quiet and laying around and relaxing while the kids are jumping over him and all that, right? If you, if you do something that he doesn't like, he'll give you a look. The head comes up and he looks at you, right? And if you don't get the message then, he may growl. Because it's just giving you a little reminder that, yeah. um, excuse me, it's the little dogs that do all the barking and yapping and threatening and baring of teeth. But what do they do when you take a step in their direction? 
they run behind the freaking chair or the couch and they try to bark from there, right? So right. people that bark, you know, it's it's anybody that that um, that kowtows to a barker has not tested the waters by just taking a step in their direction or just stop, draw the line in the sand. Okay? If you're going to threaten to hurt me, you know what? Don't do it tomorrow. Do it now. You'll know very quickly what type of person they are, very quickly. But you have to be brave enough to do that. So, you know, we, we, test, we test our weapons on a regular basis. And you don't have to cut the person down. But you can draw your weapon, and in this case, figuratively, and say, look, you know, if you do that again, I'm going to slap you. Slap me now. I've already done it. Don't, don't slap me tomorrow. Slap me today. Right? Yeah. You'll know very, very quickly whether the person has any bite or they're willing, because usually they're the chihuahua that runs behind the chair and they keep sparking from there. Right? We have to remember that, that uh, and it's not that they're not useful. Barkers are absolutely useful. Right? They're useful in the same context today that they were useful in temples in the old days, whether we're talking about little dogs like Shih Tzus or we're talking about Siamese cats. Right? Mm -hmm. They're not threatening. They were alarm systems. Right, yeah. They were alarm systems. There's an intruder that's not anybody I know. I'm going to make a bunch of noise. Yeah. Right? So absolutely. Right? So position them in context. Hmm. So anyway. Uh, don't be a barker. Don't don't be that dog. <laughs> don't be that dog, right? Um, if you are, then not only ninjutsu, but budo is not for you, right? Mm. Just just accept the fact that you're practicing martial arts because it's a it's a fun recreation and allows me to fantasize about being kind of like being in D and D, right? I can fantasize right. about being a paladin, but I'm rolling dice to see if he hits me with a sword. I'm not really going to die, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. So, uh, then do that, right? And again, who said we were ever going to be PC or fashionable? Never made that promise, folks. I never said it. <laughs> I never said it. Right? <laughs> Honesty always, never a dull moment. And I can't keep the promise of keeping you safe because you're not in my locale. But I can make the promise that I will pass the lessons for keeping yourself safe as uh, as close to authentic as I know them. So, right. uh, so there's that. So... <laughs> we uh, have some questions that we want to get to with, uh, you know, Josh was uh, asking about recently and, and even shared a little video here with us about the, the fighting stance, talking about the old school, uh, what do you call it, the old boxing stance, or, you know, he referenced the, the mascot for Notre Dame, Fighting Irish, kind of this uh, absolutely fists with, uh, I don't know, they're kind of backwards, most people would say, uh, in, in the way they hold them. But, um, well, they look funny. And, you know, right, right. It's that's, kind of that's funny, the way funny I thing. Oh. <laughs> right. Um, but, it, it, you know, I think he references, and it is kind of interesting when you look at it, it's like, well, how close that is to what would be Arichimonji. And he Jumonji, references right, Jumonji yeah. about, you know, having yep. having the backs of uh, the forearms facing out in a way. And, of course, we learn that that's, you know, putting the – Putting the, all the tendons and and veins and arteries and all the soft stuff, you know, away from danger, things like a knife attack, those kinds of things. And 
putting sure. putting the more uh, or or if we work with the armor, you know, talking about the the, sh the parts of the plates of the armor facing out. So, you know, I get all of those those kinds of different things. But you know, he talked about um, you know whether there's any other similarities between the two. I I know relatively nothing about the bare knuckle boxer stance uh, beyond seeing it, like most other people. So, I don't know if you have uh, more to to uh, inform on that one. No, he really did answer his own question, but what I wanted to do is go into that a little bit more because people didn't see his whole his whole thing. That right in the middle of his question, he admits that I think I just answered my own question. Um, <laughs> but if you uh, you know in the in the dojo, I always I, I give uh, kids an assignment that they were going to work through with their parents, or I tell adults to do this. Right, do some research on the old bare knuckle boxers. Uh, pre, I would think, like the 1930s, give or take. Before that, before the advent of boxing gloves or the use of boxing gloves in uh, in sport boxing, uh, where the you know guys were doing street fighting, or they used to call it pugilism, right? Which really yeah. is a nice name for beating the shit out of somebody with your fists. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, but if you if you just bring up some pictures of these old bare knuckle boxers, uh, what you're going to see are is a posture that ranges anywhere between something that looks like kind of a, a, a variation of our Jumonji to a variation of the Gyoko Ryu Ichimonji no Kamai, right? Um, and absolutely, the knuckles are turned toward the bad guy because anybody that has any kind of experience knows that you keep the working end of your weapon pointing at the bad guy, not pointing at yourself, right? Um, and you also want to make it as difficult as possible for him to damage you or damage your weapon, which in the case of unarmed uh, fighting is exactly the same, right? Yeah. Because if they shut down your weapons, then it's just a matter of walking in and shutting you down, uh, kind of like the Black Knight from Monty Python, right? You chop off his arms <laughs> and legs. Now you have to get within range so he can bite your kneecaps off, right? <laughs> right. But you're, you know, you're literally a sitting doctor sitting black knight or whatever so um yeah so the whole idea behind this is if you look across cultures what you see is that experience has taught people to position things in a very specific way even in thai boxing where it looks like they're they're kind of violating this where the arms are up and the insides of the forearms are pointing at the bad guy right mm -hmm. but the fists are in kind of a bear in kind of a bear paw kind of position where they come down with those door knocking knuckles mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. Um, they're lifting things, but they're up in kind of a hoko position. So the, the 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 parts that you could hurt are on the same plane, maybe out a little bit, right, um, toward the person, but they're harder to get at because they're high, right? If I want to shut this guy down, why would I go for his forearms when uh, it's bare knuckle and I should be hitting him in the head or the ribs or uh, whatever? And besides that, it's a it's a not a kicking art, but they rely on kicking primarily. So you want to move you want to move the limbs away from the legs so the arm can't be broken or damaged by an incoming shin or something like that, right? So there's there's a reason for moving these things into into given positions, and it's about protecting your weapon. Okay, so if you look at some of these things, like our jimonji, I, I know lots of people in this art who, because of their preferences, not because they have any kind of combat experience or can relate it to combat experience, prefer to keep their hands in a position that have their knuckles pointing up because it's just more relaxing. It feels more natural. Okay? Great. It feels more natural from a comfort position, but it's not more natural for 
for obtaining the strategic results you're looking for in a fight, which is to position your weapons so that they are lined up with targets. So it reduces the amount of movements you have to create to bring the tip of your weapon or the working edge of your weapon to bear on a target, and it simultaneously protects the weapon from breakage against incoming attacks. So natural is pulling the elbows down um, over the ribs so the ribs are protected, uh, and to turn the forearms toward the, the, uh, the attacker's weapons so it's harder for him to damage your arms because what you're doing is you're taking those two bones and turning the arm sideways so that when they hit it, they're hitting something broader, and it, it, um, it distributes the impact across a broader surface, making it more difficult to, for them to break an individual bone. It also turns your knuckles toward the bad guy while also simultaneously turning your life-sustaining systems, right, your veins and arteries and nerves on the inside of the arm away from them. So, yes, they can cut a muscle on the outside of your arm, but those muscles are designed for opening your hand, not closing it, okay? And while you can get cut there and be bleeding, you're not being reduced in your ability to function in a fight as much as you would be if you have your knuckles pointing up where they can come up from underneath or your knuckles pointing towards you where they can just cut the, you know, the, the, the things that allow you to make a fist, allow you to hold on to somebody. And if you get cut there, you're going to bleed a whole lot more than if the muscle gets cut, right? You're going to be like Spider-Man spraying. So um, yeah. all these things are about protecting things while also making, um, making it uh, easier for you to hit him and harder for him to hit you. So when we're in a Jumonji, just like these boxers that used to do that, right, um, the guy has to cross over or under your blocking limb, right, which could be either one, uh, to get at you. So even your instinctive response will allow for a block to occur. Um, in the modified version, like the, the Notre Dame fighting Irish character kind of thing that looks kind of like a, uh, uh, a modified Ichimonji no Kamae, mm-hmm. the palms are up, the knuckles are forward, right? But if you also look at that, the limbs are at an odd angle, and they're very difficult to grab or hit. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, it's the same thing with our Ichimonji. If you look at our Ichimonji, if you don't have the lead arm in the correct position, which creates an odd 30-degree angle, and the fingers are pointing at the opposite shoulder, right? If you don't create that, if you relax that too much, it becomes a handlebar, and the guy can reach in and grab it, okay? Um, it, it, just, it creates this, it creates an angle like the, uh, the overhead bow, the staff block against an incoming sword or, or staff strike. Right, it creates that angle that when it gets hit, it creates a glance. Right, so there are these angles that are created. Right, but again, the knuckles are pointing at the bad guy. Uh, you know, if we use a modern thing, which a lot of a lot of street fighters, at least here in America, and I'm assuming in the West, because of boxing, right, they forget that when you're fighting on the street or you're defending yourself, you don't have five inches of cotton in front of your knuckles. Right, so yeah. by not having that buffer to put in front of your face as a protective barrier, uh, you don't, you know, things are ch- different, right? He doesn't have gloves yeah. on his hand. Uh, so boxers will not punch the arms. Boxers typically won't punch the chest. Yeah. Um, I, I worked out with a, with a golden glove boxer way back in my early days in the 80s uh, when I was a military policeman. 
And when he came to train with our group, he, of course, ego always makes people throw things out so that you know <laughs> that they know something, right? right so the first right. words out of his mouth, you know, first words out of his mouth were, oh, first thing my coach told me was never punch somebody in the chest because uh, it doesn't hurt. So the <laughs> first technique we did, I counterstruck his arm and punched him on the breastbone. And in his doubled over position, he said, he lied. He lied. <laughs> and I said, he didn't lie. In a boxing match, when he has gloves on and you have gloves on, hitting somebody in the chest doesn't hurt. Yeah. Knuckles against ribs or sternum absolutely <laughs> does hurt. So we uh, want to put this shield, either a shield yeah. in front of us like Jumanji, or we want to angle our body to move those targets away so he doesn't have access to them. So this wow. is about strategic positioning and tactical application, not about confusing, you know, fighting with boxing gloves with, and, and that's what happens with street fighters, right? Sure. They, they follow boxing or their friends fight this way and the hands are bobbing up in front of the face because, you know, so it works on the street. Why does it work on the street? But you're saying it doesn't work. Well, it works on the street because typically you're going to be fighting somebody who believes the same thing and fights the same way you do. And as long as that's happening and neither of you see the forearm, the ulna bone, as a good target, and neither of you strategically understand that he's got his knuckles pointing at his eyeball, so if you punch him on the arm, he punches himself in the face. If neither hmm. of you think that way or see that, then no problem. But if you come up against somebody like me who does see that and you get into boxing position, I will immediately begin pounding on your forearms to shut your arms down, even if you, can't, even if you don't punch yourself in the face. Right? right. You're giving me targets that are absolutely good targets, but because you learn from boxers with gloves and you try to apply that with to bare knuckle, see, now you're not doing it like guys who are good at fighting bare knuckle. Mm. So before we laugh at the English slash Irish slash Notre Dame pose or whatever, or, you know, we want to modify our martial art because, see, this just feels more natural to me, and it's all theory, um, you might want to take a, take some time, step back, and, and ask, like Josh is asking, why would they do that, right? How does this relate to what we're doing, mm -hmm. okay? And, uh, again, you know, whenever my, this is the same as when my teenagers ask me a question. Why does this work the way it does? See, I have a benefit that my dad didn't have. My dad would have to call back on his, on his information or tell me to go to the encyclopedia that he paid thousands of dollars for that was on a mm -hmm. shelf or whatever. I can simply look over and go, yeah, that phone, that phone I pay a lot of money for, two words for you, Google it. Because mm -hmm. all you have to do is Google these things, and the pictures pop up. Why are right. these guys standing this way? If they have any film that was converted to video that's out there, you would understand very quickly. Because a lot of these bare-knuckle boxers back in the day, a new fighter would step up and have their arms in a place where they're a target. They'd start punching it. Because mm. not only are you damaging them, but within a strike or two, you cause that person to want to stand at a better distance that makes it harder for them to get at you because yeah. if they stand closer, you're going to break them. Hmm. Okay. Um, are these things in our kata not written? They're implied. Yeah. And this is part of what comes through in the Kuden transmission because, again, I'm going to remind everybody, right, the scrolls don't hold all the information. They don't hold details. And the reason for that is because paper and ink were at a premium. So, they're like crib notes. They're like, uh, what are those things that college students get for courses? Um, 
they're the you can buy them at bookstores. They're just the they're the Cliff summary notes. of you know yeah. King Lear or whatever. What yeah, Cliff notes. Cliff notes. Cliff notes. There you go. Right. Yeah. They, they really are that. They're reminders of the lesson, but you've got all this other knowledge. So yeah, uh, you know. And again, uh, what's his name? Um, this this kind of rolls into uh, Sam's comment on the Ichimonji lesson that uh, that Mr. Paul uh, Sensei Paul had taught at the dojo uh, last night. Right. Um, all you have to do is use things as a litmus test. Like, do you want to get punched in the face or do you want to get kicked in the groin? If not, then don't freaking stand in your kamai at that angle, because if you're close enough or at the right angle and he can access it. Who wouldn't try to punch you in the face or a target that's wide open? Mm-hmm. So just because you feel or think that you're doing things the right way, the question is, can he get at you? If he can, no matter how right you think you are, you're not. So, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. Uh, but this uh, this kind of reminds me, not. too, of uh, something we worked on a few times. Uh, something I don't recall pulling out often but was always amazed at was – uh, striking an incoming strike, uh, uh, huh. you know, jamming up an incoming punch, and and what that can do to an opponent in, in terms of throwing off their balance, and um, you know, very much it was one of those kind of fire uh, type things we worked on of, of the strike coming in and jamming that up, and and how that just kind of shuts down the whole strike process of the the opponent. Um, I don't know why that makes me think of this, but it did. Well, that's actually that actually is in the scrolls, and it has a it has a name. It's called um, Tenkudaki, crushing hmm. the punch, right? It's in a it's in a series of things. We have Tenkudaki, crushing the punch. We have Kedikudaki, crushing the kick. We have um, there's several other ones in there. Uh, Heihodoki, uh, hmm. you know, that's the hand wrist grab escapes and things like that, right? Taihodoki, escaping from body grabs. These are these are uh, it's a category of techniques where you are breaking their attack, right? Yeah, breaking their yeah. attack. So it's not an it's not an official kata, but see, here's one of those things where you're talking about where the fist has to be coming. So people, you know, they they understand. Okay, I get out of the way. I punch the I punch the punching arm. That's cool. Okay, but then we we get in class and we talk about punching the arm, and they start looking through the scrolls, and they're like, well, where is that? Well, that's Ken Kudaki too. Ken Kudaki never said that he had to be punching you for yeah. you to punch and break his fist, right, or to, punch, to, to break his punch, right? There's always the three times, and this comes from Mikio. There's the three times. There's the past, present, and future, okay? So uh, I can break his attack. I can break his punches by breaking the bones in, the, in, the, uh, in his foot so he's immobile and can't throw a certain type of punch or can't reach out to get me because he can't attack at all, okay? So that's, I've done something in the past to prevent this thing from, you know, from doing this thing, right? Um, I can do it in the present. He's currently punching, and therefore I, um, what do you call it? I, uh, uh, I punch the, the incoming arm. Or he gets in range, and I reach out and break a bone on the, on the top of his hand, before he gets a chance to throw it, mm. okay? Um, so, you know, it's just people need to be able to see outside of just the cliff note of here's an example of this strategy or tactic in application, right? Stop collecting stamps, 
I get it that we need the kata to learn the lessons from the kata, but always remember that a kata is an initiation into a field of study or a, a way of thinking or a strategic application or a tactical thing or whatever, and you're supposed to take that and run with it. That's what uh, Takamatsu said he called uh, the kionapo. Uh, he didn't use the word principle when he talked about the kionapo, where you're supposed to be making eight variations of eight variations, not just for the kata that we call the kionapo, but for every technique, right? So what are eight other ways that you can come at this same thing and end up with the same result, right? So, uh, you know, yes, I can punch his forearms. I can kick his forearms. I can strike his mm -hmm. forearms with a weapon. I can, whatever, right? Um, how do I break the punch? I can spit in his eye before he punches. Yeah. At the moment he thinks he's going to punch, I can spit in his eye, right? If we're working at the fifth dawn and above level, where we are in tune with his intention to attack, I don't have to wait for the attack to unfold. The moment I recognize that he is going to go, I simply shift to a position that makes that attack um, moot, right? So one of the things that I share with the upper-level black belts is once you bridge the fifth on level and you understand or you can feel when an attack is going to happen, you're picking up on his intent, that's very powerful because now I have choice. When I know he's going to attack, I can wait for it and avoid it. I can launch an attack of my own and intercept it, or I can move at the last second, not when he's punching, but at the moment he intends to attack, and I can shift to a position that makes that attack not possible. So he has to reset and go through the process again to set things up and try again. So, again... You know, the kata are a starting point. They're not the end-all to be-all for what we're doing. They're an example of a piece of a fight in a snapshot of time that show, okay, here's an incoming attack, punch, kick, grab, whatever, and I'm going to go in this direction that produces a certain type of outcome. Okay? So in the beginning, of course, we learn them. Because if we use the Shuhati model, right, Shu is to preserve and copy. So there are no questions, there are no variations. Do it this way. Copy your teacher. Okay, great. But 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 there is no but. Until you can do the kata, how could you be asking about what ifs? How could you be asking about under what conditions would this be used? How can you ask, you know, could I do this instead of that? You can't do the base model yet, so nothing else matters, Right? Then yeah. the next level is the hot level to break, right? It's about breaking the form. But why would we break it? Conditional variants, right? Conditional variations, right? He's this big or he's this wide or he's armored or, you know, uh, I picked up the punch. It was the third punch out of the series instead of being the first one. I'm between two parked cars. My wife and kids are on my arms, you know, whatever, right? There are these very, the, these conditions. So, you know, the, what throws a lot of people off is they don't understand that what Hatsumi Sensei is demonstrating things. And this doesn't matter if you've been to Japan in the dojo, you've been to a Taikai, uh, you've never trained with Hatsumi Sensei, but you've trained with other teachers, or you watch freaking videos on YouTube. It doesn't matter. When Hatsumi Sensei demonstrates something and then he says, well, you can do this, or you can do this, or you can do this, or you can do this, he's simply pointing out possibilities it's your job to do the work of figuring out when that would be right and appropriate. 
you know, a double, uh, double A full pass, okay, right mm -hmm. action, okay, when is that the right action? Just like the, the thing we talked about when we first started the show, right, yeah. opening your mouth and saying something, when is that right and appropriate? Even a slanderous thing or something that is harmful or whatever, when is it right and appropriate and good karma? Mm. Right? It's not always about talking, speaking good or speaking well, you know, speaking good or speaking well or being <laughs> eloquent or whatever. You know, when I was a PI, if I walked into a freaking biker bar uh, because I was following somebody, right, the last thing I want to do is sit down and say, uh, excuse me, sir, uh, may I have a, uh, let me have a log. Uh, can I have <laughs> right. that, please? Right? Freaking sit down and I go, uh, yeah, whenever you have time, can I get a beer, please? You know? And I might not even use the word please. Right. Huh? If I'm in South Philly on a street corner and there's three kids, you know, kind of giving me some problems, if I don't pepper every other word with a four-letter expletive, then I might as well paint the word victim across my forehead. Right. Right? So do I walk around speaking that way all the time? No, because it doesn't serve me. What produces the end result based on the variables you have to work with? So, anyway... Hmm. So we uh, we transition now from fists to feet, uh, finding a, a question here, again from Josh, and this may be from last, potentially he's talking about last uh, week's episode, uh, where there was an, uh, a discussion uh, about roundhouse kick, or he was looking forward to a round, round kick explanation, um, and it talks about that one uh, not really being seen much, uh, perhaps, in, in Bujinkan material. Uh, but goes on to talk about the side, what we call the sideways push kick, and how that differs mm. from what he's seen in some uh, karate schools, and how their their whole foot is parallel to the floor, versus the mm. way our our sideways push kick happens. So, um, you know, what what are the reasons and behind that? Uh, well, let me first start with the I don't know, I wasn't there. Uh, <laughs> I think that they use it that sometimes uh, people are so into things, they'll go, you know, the best that I have to offer is the research that I have, stuff that Takamasa that gave me, uh, you know, historical research and all those kind of things. So based on uh, what I know about tactical and strategic things and all that, um, I can say that something is true or something is not true. But ultimately, I wasn't there, right? So that's one of those authenticity things as well. But... Uh, I will say that uh, if we think about um, the differences between a system that was developed for people who were not armored and who had to deal with an invading force who were armored, right, there are certain reasons for doing things. Uh, there's also, you know, uh, uh, I mean, there's lots of considerations for things, but uh, those round kicks, right, a high round kick, um, you know, you're kicking with the bones at the top of your foot, right? Mm -hmm. So what are you kicking? Well, we're kicking the side of the head, right? What are you kicking? We're kicking the weakest point on the side of the head. What is that? The temple. Mm -hmm. Knowing that if you miss that, and all you have to do is watch some of these videos of, of MMA matches going bad, what happens? Yeah. Bones of the foot or Bone the ankle break. or the shin breaks, absolutely, yeah. right? Does that mean you won't make it? they're not very big. <laughs> Right. Does that make him dazed and dizzy? Yes, of course. Right. But if you're broken and on the ground, he'll recover. You can't get yeah. up. Right. Yeah. So, right. So what do they do for these matches? Well, they put foam on your feet so that you can't break the bones of your foot. Why do they put foam there? 
because you can break the bones of your foot, and they're trying to put an element of safety in. Right? Sure. So, but I don't know because I wasn't there, but I would assume that people going into battle would have taken taking, uh, rags or some kind of material and wrapped their foot. Yeah. Because you only have to – Thai people do it. The Thai fighters wrap their, uh-huh. their uh-huh. insteps and ankles, right? Um, why? Well, because you don't want to get broken in the middle of doing your cool technique, right? So, but when it comes to uh, our stuff, right, I can simply relate it to the combat tactics of the time that I know to be historically true. Um, so it kind of it's, it's, it goes along with answering the question that was posed to me by a jiu-jitsu and Arnis guy a long time ago, right? Uh, he mixed Arnis with his, uh, his fighting method because he liked the rattan sticks over the Japanese stuff that he was being taught because his question was, you know, why did the Japanese use, you know, red oak and stuff like that? It's so heavy and hard to move. Why did they use rattan? <laughs> I just looked at him and went, because mm. rattan doesn't grow there. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I guess that makes sense. You know, from, from a modern American perspective, well, we can go to a martial arts supply store and we're getting stuff from Taiwan, we're getting stuff from the Philippines, we're getting stuff from all over because of international trade. Yeah. We can yeah. forget that the world wasn't always that way, mm. <laughs> you know? So um, it's the same thing. So if we, if we look at the fact that um, during, during certain times of the year, right, uh, they didn't have overcoats and uh, duck down and, you know, insulate sure. and all that, right? Yeah. So they're wearing multiple layers of kimono or however the clothing was, okay, which makes it heavy and hard for you to move, okay? They're in straw sandals or on geta uh, or they're in heavy armor, right? Imagine wearing your own body weight in armor and then think about bending over to do that kick, Hmm. okay? Yeah, Uh, (laughs) probably not a smart thing to do. I see Josh is he's listening and has commented through the through the page says one of the worst things in Olympic style Taekwondo wasn't getting kicked in the head or the wind knocked out of you. It was when your opponent elbowed intentionally or not your instep when you tried to roundhouse kick the midsection. Uh, no walking. Right, and he simply he instinctively <laughs> brought his arm up to cover. Right, right. And you kick that hard bone, and then you can't oh. walk the next day. <laughs> right. So all it takes is little experience moments like that to go note to self. Right. Uh-huh. I'll do that kick if I'm wearing hikers or sneakers or whatever, but I'm not going to use that when I'm wearing flip-flops. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, absolutely, it is one of the worst things. So, um, But anyway, getting back to this, if I'm wearing armor and I bend over, that's just a bad situation, right? Yeah. Uh, so picking the leg up, just like doing a front stomp kick, picking the leg up and kicking out that way, uh, but also the opposite is also true, right? Try doing one of these kicks that require that you kick faster or more often on somebody who's wearing armor. Okay? Those kicks didn't develop because of the armor. Imagine kicking somebody. If it hurts when you kick somebody's elbow with the instep, imagine kicking the side of a kabuto, the side mm-hmm. of a helmet, mm-hmm. right? Or even kicking the solde, the, the, the shoulder piece that hangs off, right? Or the metal or lacquered wood on the outside of their um, – uh, their their sleeve, right? The uh, the cote, right? Um, same thing, right? So these kicks that, if you look at them, are very similar to, if not exactly the same, as when a police officer kicks in a door, right? You're kicking something mm-hmm. that's practically immovable, 
or very, very heavy, and you need to be braced and on balance and not compromising your balance to do it, right? So um, it's about knocking somebody away, if not backing down. It's not about hitting them just to cause some damage. Right. right? Yeah. I'm not saying you can't knock somebody out and drop them like a stone if you do a, you know, one of these kicks fast and hard. Mm-hmm. But I have yet to be dropped. I've been knocked sideways. I've had some wind knocked out of me because they kicked you know, the flitting rib. Or mm-hmm. I've been dazed because they kicked me in the head, but more often than not, I don't go down. Just like if somebody's punching me. It takes the right shot at the right angle on the right target to knock somebody out. Otherwise, you got to keep punching. Mm-hmm. Okay? So, mm. But if we're looking at self-defense, four moves or less, ten seconds or less, or you're freaking losing. Right? So, um, so anyway, it's about knocking somebody away. Uh, but with that side, side stomp kick, right, because in Mod 3, uh, Josh isn't there yet, but he will be soon. When you get there, you have four-directional kicking, and we're talking about the stomp kick, right? So you have, in Mod 2, you learn the front stomp kick, Dempogeri uh, Sopiakuken, the front stomp kick, and then in Mod 3, we give you outside, the push kick he's talking about, cross-side, which is typically mm-hmm. called Kakushigeri, which is the hidden kick, and then mm-hmm. the rear kick. Right, um, because the enemy could be, you know, it could be coming from any direction, right? But at the same time, let's let's look at this side stomp kick. We'll just stay there for the moment, so I don't get all divergent, right? Um, what if I'm dealing with somebody already? I'm tied up with this guy, and I'm dealing with the guy in front of me. I can't turn to engage somebody that's coming in from the side without getting blindsided by the guy that's in front of me that that is currently trying to hurt me or holding on to me, and I can't pitch my body to throw a kick to the side because, again, I'm in a compromised position that the guy in front of me could take advantage of, okay? So I'm currently engaged with somebody to the front. Somebody comes in from the side. This kick gives me a way to engage that person to at least create a moment to stall them so I can reposition myself without taking my attention off the guy at the front. And that's how you were taught, but... uh, does this make sense? That's the question. Does it make sense? Right? Because we have to think about when and why it would be used. Okay? And if, you know, if, if we always stay within a one-on-one and the guy I'm dealing with is in the front, well, why would I use that? Hmm. Okay? I wouldn't. Right? But as soon as yeah. we move to multiple attackers, that changes. Or somebody's giving me a bunch of crap from the front, I'm holding my baby or my grandchild or I'm holding something that I don't want to break, and I need to give it to my wife. Hold this, go to the car. I'll be over in a minute, right? If I turn to deal with her or to give this to her, this guy can move in on me, okay? I can't just hold it sideways because I've weakened my arms, right? Same thing, especially with a child, right? Hand it over this way. I could try but she has to get close enough that now she's in the field of fire, okay? So when I turn to hand it to her, they could take that advantage and move in. But now I'm in a side alignment with the person, and this kick, because my legs are longer than my arms, gives me the ability to have my hands tied up, but the ability to engage them, again, to kick and at least knock them back and stall them so that I could finish the handoff and then turn and re-engage. So, we have, right. again, we have to think about the context that it would be useful for, and if we think about, what, a third 
of the of the year where I live that you moved away from, mm-hmm. us, um, <laughs> right? um, we're wearing heavy clothing, right? If, if this is happening in the in the winter time, right? This guy may have stepped out of his heated car, and so he's you know maybe more comfortable than I am. But I might be wearing a parka and heavy clothes and boots and whatever. Um, and I would highly suggest this for anybody that thinks I'm full of it, right? Uh, put on a vest, put on, uh, you know, your hunting vest or put on uh, your, you know, put on a, a sweatshirt and a hoodie and your winter coat, right? Mm-hmm. And then lean over to do a, to do a Taekwondo style kick and see how that works. Okay. <laughs> um, or do that on uh, sand and see if your foot doesn't slip out from under you. Do it on uh, a wet, slippery floor or loose gravel. Okay. Um, you know, so it's, again, it's context. So am I telling you that those kicks are, are pointless or that they don't work? Absolutely not. I'm not letting you kick me with that thing. But at the same time, <laughs> just like Josh said, when you're exposing things like that, if I know somebody's throwing Taekwondo kicks, those kind of kicks, yeah. if I can't stay far enough away from you, I'm not going to block it. I'm going to drop under, let it go over, and I'm going to punch or tackle your base knee. So when I slightly displace it and your body is torquing and depending on that joint to be stable and weight-supporting, and I displace it, now that displaced joint can't support your body weight, and your body weight itself and the torquing action blows that knee apart. Just letting you know, and that's not even mentioning the fact that as a modern-day warrior, I still have a blade on my side most days. Mm-hmm. That doesn't even account for the fact that you expose not only the, the uh, femoral uh, uh, artery and, and, the, and the, the veins and nerves on the underside of the kicking leg, but also the base leg. Why chase a kicking leg? Because I could drop under it and hold the blade up and let your leg pass over and cut mm-hmm. itself on my blade. Or I can just go after the thing that's not moving. Go under and move in and cut the, the, those uh, tendons or life-sustaining systems um, on the baseline, okay? So so why were those things developed? Because they were developed to kick somebody off horseback or off of a mounted position, okay? So you're, you're not exposed. The horse or the mount or the rock or whatever you're on is, is protecting you. But when you do that and you don't have a natural shield, then let's not even talk about the fact that you just exposed little Elvis to the world and um, he's about to leave the building through your <laughs> seventh point of contact out the back end. Right? So, yeah. <laughs> the joke is we will make you look like a Doberman who's already been docked. Right? <laughs> so, anyway, uh, always good questions. Always good questions. But that, this uh-huh. is... Uh, the reason, I mean, think about armor, think about uh, having to negotiate somebody from the front, all those kind of things. Uh, leaning over and doing those other kicks, yeah, not a good idea. Well, that kind of brings us to the end of end of our time for this episode, but uh, we might have a brief really? moment here. We're having so much fun. Two, I know. For, for any kind of additional <laughs> or follow-up questions, I, I don't see anything on the Q&A side at the moment. Uh, I know. Must have, Josh must be lighting up, lighting a notebook on, on fire, writing notes or 
Yeah. Well, you knew he had, you know, two or three uh, backlog questions we had to get to, so. Right, of course, of course. <laughs> yeah. So I think we covered two for him this week, so he doesn't get one for next week. Um, He's used up his <laughs> quota. <laughs> Sam's not on. Tim is, Tim is here as usual. Uh, Tim decided to throw a uh, Buenos Dias at us. And, uh, I don't know how to handle that, dude. I mean, we're, we're talking about the Japanese martial art, and you're going to throw Spanish at us. Fine. <laughs> I do that in the dojo, though. Somebody will walk in, and I'll go, hola, as they would say in Japan, if you're a Spanish speaker in Japan. Right. <laughs> uh, right. So, anyway. So, it's always good to see Tim on. and uh, we, have, we have a bunch of other people. I think maybe they're just lurkers. That's what it is. Anybody have any question, other questions or comments, or you know, am I just we're we're, we're talking to nobody, right? Um, there are some people. Um, I actually find we have a lot of uh, a lot of uh, comments from folks that uh, they send me emails and things uh, with a, uh, not necessarily a question, but they want to hook up to talk about uh, long distance training or whatever. But uh, what they end up telling me is that they they because of their work schedule they can't be on live. And uh, so, but they've listened to every episode uh, through the recordings and, and all that kind of cool stuff. So uh, don't forget that you can pull a Chris, okay? Um, and I, hopefully he's chuckling when he listens to this. Because Chris, is, uh, if you make a black belt for me, um, within a year, well, not within, if you're still training with me a year somewhere between a year and two after that, um, I give you a martial name. And the martial name is either something that is befitting your personality or it could be something that you need to work on or whatever because I pulled that from Mikio. But I give you a martial name. And uh, right now, if, if Chris continues on with what it is, it's going to be Crestoning Dragon or Questioning Tiger or something like that, <laughs> right? Inquisitive Tiger, whatever, right? But he's, he's like the question guy. Uh, I can't answer one without – and he always says – Sir, I, I, I got a quick question for you. And I go, dude, you never ask quick questions. And even if your question isn't long and drawn out, the question is never, you know, something that is going to give you a quick answer. Unless I just look at you and go, yeah, dude, whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> right? But um, uh, what Chris does when he has a question, uh, so that you don't forget, right? As soon as you get the, get the, the, the text, or not the text, but the email that comes through to let you know that the, the thing is on. Um, instead of thinking, you know, I'll, I'll send that email later and then you forget, or, you know, I can't, one of the, I really wish I was on because I'd ask this question, or whatever, right? Um, as soon as we send that, you can click on the link for the show, and it will take you to a pre-show page that will say, you know, return to this page at a certain time or whatever, and, uh, you know, then you can be on live. Um, it'll take you to a pre-show page. You can still scroll down, and there's a question block right there. The question block that's on during the live show is on during that one as well. So yeah. you can post your question five hours or whatever, two hours or whatever you get that. You can post it before the show, and then when we sign on and go over to the Q&A thing, it's already there. It'll tell us that you posted eight hours prior but it doesn't matter. We, we've got the question there, and then so That's you don't right. have to miss on the opportunity. So don't rely on your memory or the day to allow you to do something later. Stop friggin' procrastinating, right? We've set things up so that you can take advantage of what it is or just click reply to the email that you're getting and post a question and hit send. It'll come right back to us. So do it when you're thinking of it 
so that you're proactive and taking – so unless you're in the middle of fighting off, you know, a uh, – you know, a member of the Sith, you know, from the future or whatever, in the moment, take the couple of seconds to ask the question. That way we can have the answer on the recording for you, and you can stop wishing for a better time or a time in the future or whatever, because in all reality, friends, you're not guaranteed five minutes from now. So... What I always say is um, plan and operate uh, or, or dream. Dream as though you're going to live forever. And I think this is an old James Dean thing, right? Dream as though you're going to live forever, but live as though you're not guaranteed, you know, the next moment. Yeah, right. right? Hmm. Uh, but I think he said something like dream as though you're going to live forever, but live as though you're going to uh, die today. Right? And make sure that when you die – Right. The last thoughts on your deathbed or in the car or whatever it is, is I've, I've lived a damn good life. I'm ready for mm. this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Die with no regrets. Okay. So anyway, oh, we'll end that on a, so, a somber note. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's somber. I'm laughing about it because um, there's nothing more wasteful than somebody to have an entire lifetime and then hit a certain age and go, oh, if I were younger, I would have done this again. And Wow, talk about adding suffering to suffering, because you're already going to be right. in pain when you're old sure. and you're dying and stuff like that. Why, why would you add mental and emotional, uh, you know, that kind of mental and emotional grief to it? Jesus Christ, me, you know? I, as far as I'm concerned, I don't care what religion you are or what your belief system is or whatever, but, um, you know, you have an opportunity to create a heaven or a hell right here, right now. So whether there is one after death or not, I'm not going to debate that, right? Um, our decisions create those things. Karma's a bitch, right? So you're either creating positive karma, and this might be something to do on a different show where we talk about um, in, the, in, in Mikyo and in Buddhism, there's this idea that the salvation from suffering, um, the, the way to nirvana uh, is the Noble Eightfold Path. And one of those uh, areas is right effort. And while, you know, we could talk about putting the right amount of energy into things based on how you prioritize and stop squandering your energy on things that are less important, and you know they're less important, and having only a little bit of energy left for the things you really want to do and those kind of things, um, we could break that out and jump into the deeper level lesson that's not in a lot of books that's only for insider practitioners, like the four right efforts, right? So there's a deeper lesson into what effort really means. And just like there's deeper lessons like uh, the 12 full chain of dependent origination that assesses karma, but still about effort. It's still about understanding the process and how you're directing things and, and being proactive in uh, cutting out ignorance and, and those kind of things, right? So, but the four right efforts might be a cool thing to do because – um, yeah. You know, it's it's not just about what you're doing. Sometimes it's about avoiding and reducing or eliminating. Because if you reduce and eliminate things that are hindrances, you by default create a more positive experience. As long as you're not deluded into believing that we can completely get rid of pain, sorrow, and suffering. Hmm. It's not that you, no, that's, sorry, that's not part of the human condition. But what you can do is not exacerbate the issue and make a mountain out of a molehill, 
or be chasing after a utopic, no pain ever kind of uh, existence, and then you're disappointed at every turn. I was telling somebody earlier that the happiest day of my life was when my teacher told me there is no everlasting happiness, right? there is no everlasting, no pain, anything, right? In this life as a human being, whatever you want to believe afterwards is fine, but the whole idea is that was like the happiest day of my life, and that's one of the most surprising things to a lot of people, but I can look them in the eye and say, it was the happiest day of my life because that day I could stop chasing after something that doesn't exist. Hmm. So, you know, it is what it is. All right. Well, I just extended that and pushed this all the way <laughs> over the effort. Nobody else was asking any questions, so yeah. there's an extra bonus for well, that, it. Well, so. no, that's a that's a good little bonus discussion. My my curiosity and experiential mind. Uh, my hope is I'm just extremely aware of what's going on because I'll just be so curious as to what's going to go and the process and how it'll happen. I'm not certainly rushing towards that, so. <laughs> but I mean, absolutely. You no, know, so many people are like so fearful of it, and that this the unknown, and I'm kind of like, okay, you know, it, it's yeah, and you know that's going to happen. Another I want to be really thing. aware. Yeah, that's another confusion for historians and practitioners of the warrior arts, where you know there's a saying that the warrior accepts death. That has nothing to do with whether the, the whether the warrior wants to die or not. Right. The reality is, is you have to accept death because it's part of the human condition. And if you're going to be a warrior and you're going to step up with somebody, you have to recognize that if I do more of the right things and less of the wrong things, you know, at the right time, and then he does, universal justice says I get to win. If he does more than I do, he gets to win. If you're not willing to accept death, you know, then don't step on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. don't, don't be that person because you're accepting the risk. It has nothing to do with wanting to die. And people are just, you know, they throw that thing out there and, they, you know, the warrior accepts death at every moment. And then you watch how they live and they're just the most fearful little scaredy cat rat kind of individual <laughs> that could ever exist. And it just, mm -hmm. you know, I just, oh, for fuck's yeah. sake. Excuse my language. <laughs> anyway, we were talking about Josh and his questions. He's finishing up here with the great discussion. Don't worry, I try to space out my questions. Uh, smiley face, there are always more. I have always no more. doubt. <laughs> and there better be, because questions are the way to enlightenment. Yeah. Okay? If answers for you are the way to enlightenment, then ego is leading. Because what ego mm. tries to do is memorize the answers, so it sounds enlightened. The enlightenment process threatens ego, big time, because it highlights all that ego does not know. Okay? And there's an old saying that the more you know, the more you know what you don't know. And that is absolutely true. Okay? And who wants that when they're an arrogant, self-serving prick and they want to know all the answers because to know all the answers puts me on a pedestal. Yeah, until you get knocked under it. So anyway, here's what it well, is. Right? Make sure to uh, continue to follow us. Uh, you can get those questions to us also through the Kuden podcast page, but it's a, it's a good idea to sign up uh, for Kuden Elite so you get those notifications early. Check out uh, ModernNinjaWarrior.com. You can also go to ModernNinjaWarrior.com slash Kuden-podcast-episodes. You can get all of these back episodes. That's Yeah, that's a mouthful. Uh, all these back episodes to kind of catch up if you've missed anything. Uh, and, yeah. uh, you know, all and this is 66, right? Yeah. So if you're superstitious and you're listening to the recording, don't be listening to this at 6 p.m. or 6 a.m. because that would make it <laughs> 666. So don't do that, right? Or don't listen to it on the 6th or 
never mind. I'll just shut. I'm going to do that. I'm going to see if anything happens. <laughs> this is my curiosity again. Oh, that's it. Going to happen is to wink out because you're going to be free. <laughs> no, that's no problem. Could that really happen? <laughs> wow, that <laughs> really makes me feel powerful. If that's no. <laughs> well, let's find out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All Sounds right. good. Well, um, thanks everybody again for joining us. I know, I know. Just existence. It's you know, a minor thing. <laughs> ah, screw y'all. <laughs> Let's see if we can wake out existence. <laughs> well, all right. if we all still exist, <laughs> we'll see you on the next episode of Kuden. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Kuden, the podcast for self-defense and martial arts news, interviews, techniques, and history. For more information on upcoming martial arts seminars, camps, and classes with Sheehan Miller, or to submit a question or discussion topic to the show, call 570-884-1118 or visit warrior-concepts-online.com.